The following was recorded at 4 p.m. Eastern Time. A power shift in Syria's war as the body count rises. Today, Thursday, June 13th. This is The World. I'm Marco Werman. The UN estimates 93,000 dead in Syria's civil war, and the sectarian divide there is growing. This reporter recounts how hardline rebels murdered a young man for blasphemy. Someone asked him for a free cup of coffee, and he replied with something like, Even if the Prophet Muhammad himself came and asked for a cup of coffee, I couldn't afford to give it to him because I have to make a living.、Uh, and they shot him dead、uh, for taking the Prophet's name in vain. And later, a rare chance to get up close to Mozart's very own violin and viola. They travel rarely because it's a lot of. Work to prepare and to do. We have set them up on two different planes, each accompanied by two people. PRI's The World is supported by Medtronic, now accepting nominations for the Bakken Invitation, a global celebration of patients helped by medical technology who make a difference in their communities. More on how nonprofits can earn a grant at liveongiveon.org. Hi, Marco Werman. This is the world. Numbers can be deceptive, and the number of 93,000 dead in Syria doesn't help really to make sense of the suffering there. But one stat today caught our eye. During the bloodiest month of the war in Iraq, July 2006, 3,500 people were killed. The death toll during a typical month in Syria's civil war surpasses 5,000, and there seems to be no end in sight. If anything, the Assad regime appears to have been given a new lease on life. Following the intervention of the powerful Lebanese Shiite militia, Hezbollah. Borzu Daragahi covers the Middle East for the Financial Times. So the UN today reported a toll of 93,000 deaths since the war began in Syria, Borzu. That's just the cases they've fully documented. The true toll could be three times as many. Where's this war going? You know, it's really hard to say at this point. There's a few、uh, things that we can establish. One is, as, as you pointed out,、uh, thanks to the intervention of, uh, of Russia, uh, Iran, and its ally Hezbollah,、uh, Bashar al Assad's regime seems to have a, a new lease on life.、Uh, it seems to have uh, uh, gained some、uh, tactical wins,、uh, including、uh, taking over the, the city of Qusair, which was a key transit point.、Uh, but also,、um, from what I've been hearing, the, the intervention of Hezbollah. Into this conflict injects a, a kind of tone of, of professionalism in the Syrian armed forces that wasn't there before. Let me give you an example. I, I, I was in Lebanon just recently during the, the, the time when there was this fighting going on、uh, along the border, and the Hezbollah guys were actually taking the injured people from the other side to hospitals in Lebanon.、Uh, that doesn't make them humanitarians, it just makes them professionals in the art of war. They didn't、uh, kill off these prisoners.、It's、something that we haven't seen at all. Before, when it comes to the Syrian regime. And this could、uh, be a game changer because、uh, Hezbollah actually knows how to fight and win wars. And I mean, as far as Hezbollah's reputation from the Syrian rebels' point of view, if you even see Hezbollah coming, do you kind of back away? I mean, it depends on how good of a fighter you are and how、uh, tightly organized your unit is. But, you know, that is a possibility that the rebels, after this、uh, particular lesson,、uh, they will in the future、uh, back off from any confrontation、uh, with Hezbollah. Although, I would say that the level of fighting is so fierce. And the determination of the rebels, at least some of the groups, is so strong that you know, we didn't see any evidence of them backing off in this, in this particular fight. However, 
there was something that, that sort of showed the fragmentation and the disadvantages of the rebels. There were reports uh, in the Battle for Clusaire that units from other parts of the country were coming to Clusaire to help the rebels fight against this Hezbollah-backed uh, onslaught. And uh, in the end, they didn't show up. Like the fighters from Aleppo, who are uh, very robust, uh, very strong, very well-equipped relatively, uh, they ended up not wanting to risk giving up their territory in Aleppo to come and help these guys down in Rousseau. And that's a a really bad sign uh, for the rebels. Not to mention uh, their public image is kind of taking a beating right now. Uh, Reports of atrocities seem to be increasing, including the well-documented killing of a 14-year-old boy in the streets uh, this week. Tell us about that. Oh, this was a, a, a terrible incident. Uh, apparently, and this is pretty well documented, um, apparently a 14-year-old boy was selling coffee on the streets of Aleppo to uh, make a buck or two, and someone asked him for a free cup of coffee, and he replied with something like, even if the Prophet Muhammad himself came and asked for a cup of coffee, I couldn't afford to give it to him because I have to make a living. And uh, someone overheard this comment, some uh, very hardcore Islamist rebels. They went and they, uh, they kidnapped him, roughed him up a bit, and then they took him to the, the center of the square where his relatives were looking on, uh, and they shot him dead uh, for taking the Prophet's name in vain uh, as, a, as some sort of uh, religious retribution. And, and this, was, uh, this just really shocked people. You know, I've been talking to some Syrian opposition folks in, the, in recent days and weeks and even people who are very supportive of the uh, Syrian rebels, they seem to have run out of excuses to justify some of the excesses of some of the rebel groups. Meanwhile, Borzu, there's been more talk of a regional escalation. Uh, you're in Cairo right now. How worried are your friends back in Lebanon? No, I, I think just all throughout the region, the, this whole conflict has exacerbated sectarian tensions between the, the Sunni and the Shia. Uh, this is uh, emerging in Iraq. This is coming out in Lebanon. It's becoming an issue in the Gulf. There's a lot of anger on the part of, especially of Sunnis. Uh, they see this uh, intervention by Hezbollah and Iran as a, uh, a blatant sectarian meddling in the character of the Arab world. And, and I think that it's a, it's a very dangerous dynamic that's uh, unfolding here. Uh, there's a, a, a lot of uh, a worry, a lot of concern all throughout the region, um, some of it irrational, about this sort of Shia menace. And this is largely uh, thanks to what's happening in Syria. Borzu Daragahi of the Financial Times in Cairo. Iran's also closely watching the war in Syria, but today thoughts in Iran are turned to its presidential elections tomorrow. The last time this happened, four years ago, there was a sense of excitement in the streets. A large group of Iranians was hoping for a win by a reformist candidate and that everything would change, but it didn't. Mahmoud Ahmadinejad was declared the winner again. Then the Green Revolution protest movement broke out, followed by a severe government crackdown. Now, a big part of that movement for change came from middle-class Iranian women. Many of them were fed up with the government's restrictive interpretation of Islam. These days, those female voices are heard seldom in public in Iran. But on the eve of this election, we heard from three women who had been pushing for change in 2009. They spoke with us with help from the BBC Persian service. It's risky for them to speak to a foreign news outlet. All three considered boycotting the election, but they're worried about a conservative candidate like Saeed Jalili becoming the next president. We're using voiceovers and omitting their names to protect their identity. Here's the first woman. She's about 30 and lives near Tehran. We are in a very, very bad situation. You have no idea. The sanctions, the currency, you know, we have no respect in the world. I decided to vote because maybe 
Maybe I can change this situation even a little. You know, if some candidate like Mr. Jalili becomes president of Iran, our situation is going to be worse and worse. You know, he thinks like the Taliban. He thinks women should be at home raising children and be good wives for their husbands. The thing that I would most like to change is democracy. We want freedom. We want free speech, free newspapers. There is no democracy here. Of course, I don't like to wear the hijab, but the first thing I want is freedom of speech, free newspapers, magazines, so that I can say my ideas without being afraid for my future. Here's another of the three women we spoke with. She's 40 and lives with her family in a city in northwestern Iran. She'd like to see Iran reach out to the West. I personally feel we need to establish close and friendly diplomatic relations with the West and the U.S. I really feel embarrassed when a person like Ahmadinejad represents my country and distorts the view of Iran with his bizarre behavior and words. The elections will surely affect the future for women. Before Ahmadinejad came and took the office, we already had to struggle for freedom of clothing and against compulsory hijab. But now we also have to fight for our right to work and even be educated too. The future would be bleak for women if the hardcore religious clergymen and people like Saeed Jalili took over and became president. Now, the last woman we spoke with is the eldest of the three. She's 55 and from Tehran. She's also concerned about what's happening to women in her country, but she thinks Iranians need to compromise. I'm going to vote because we have no alternative. We need to compromise and accept small step reforms. I think that we need to stop being idealistic, forget the big ideals, and cooperate with each other. In the current dark situation for our economy and society, we need to look for a small rays of hope that can shed some light to our society. I really hope that we can reduce that darkness. Three women there in Iran who spoke with the BBC about tomorrow's presidential elections and their fears and hopes for their country. Not a cross-section of Iranian society, but surely representative of many Iranians who had hoped for change. For the past week, there's been a lot of attention on Edward Snowden. He's a contractor who leaked information about the NSA's phone and Internet surveillance programs. Apparently, he's still in Hong Kong and vowing to fight extradition to the U.S. Meanwhile, that other high-profile leaker, Bradley Manning, is on trial at Fort Meade in Maryland. The Army private has already admitted leaking hundreds of thousands of classified war documents and State Department cables. Now he's in the second week of his court-martial, still facing charges that could result in a life sentence. The world's Arun Roth has been following the Manning case. And Arun, when we last spoke, the court-martial was way ahead of schedule. They got through a week's worth of witnesses in just a few days. So what happened this week? Pretty much exactly the same thing. Uh, the, the defense once again agreed to stipulate a lot of the prosecution witnesses' testimony, meaning they didn't have to come in and testify in person. So once again, exactly like last week, they got through the whole week by Wednesday. They're already done. They have a four-day weekend. So the prosecution must be a deep into their case against Manning. How are they doing so far? Well, it seems fair to say that they have not had a great week, the prosecution. Uh, they teased out in their opening arguments a couple of things. Uh, one of them was that Bradley Manning had access to WikiLeaks' most wanted list. It was sort of a laundry list of the things they most wanted. They accused him of basically using that as a shopping list. They have not been able to establish that so far, even that Bradley Manning looked at that list. They actually also have uh, what is apparently a chat between Bradley Manning and Assange. And again, they have not been able to establish that Assange, if this is Assange, was actually 
actually soliciting Bradley Manning for the information, which is something that they set out to prove. Right. So w- why is that important? And does it mean that the prosecution won't be able to establish Manning's intent uh, with this leak? Right. Well, part of what's important about this is actually something that's going on in the background. There's a lot of grumbling about there's a grand jury investigating Julian Assange and WikiLeaks. So there's an idea that they're trying to establish this connection, this this idea that Julian Assange was actually soliciting for the information to uh, get more information to actually establish them as a co-conspirator if they're actually going to go after WikiLeaks at some point. So did the prosecution get traction on anything? They did have some witnesses talk about the damage that may have been caused by the leaks that Bradley Manning uh, was responsible for. There were a couple of military intelligence experts who talked about, for instance, these action reports that they could have. They could communicate information to the enemy about how we neutralize IED attacks, information about troop movements and things like that. Now, these are all very old and after the fact, so how much they actually impact things, it's, it's open for debate. But they were actually able to get some information on the record about how Bradley Manning may have, in fact, endangered soldiers' lives. And what about any evidence that the prosecutions provided on what Bradley Manning leaked? Well, that's been another problem with them this week. We actually, we know Bradley Manning has admitted to leaking some information, but one thing in particular, this airstrike, it's called the Grani airstrike or the Farah airstrike. It was in Afghanistan uh, in 2009, and it was a horrendous incident where dozens, probably over 100 civilians were killed by U.S. airstrike. Bradley Manning offered to admit leaking that, but at a different time in the timeline that the prosecution is trying to establish. They're saying that he leaked that initially, almost as soon as he got to Iraq. Manning is saying that, no, he didn't didn't leak it until March of 2010. So if the prosecution doesn't establish their timeline, then their charge sort of falls apart. So even though Bradley Manning has admitted to leaking that, because the prosecution can't establish it in the timeline they they have set out to do, uh, so far that's not coming together for them either. So what next, Arun? The prosecution will still be trying to establish, again, damage that was done by Bradley Manning uh, that could potentially be done. And it's interesting to see because we might have the fact that things have moved ahead so quickly, so fast. We've gotten through two weeks worth of testimony in basically six days. Uh, It's an unusual process, Marco, and I think it's really hard to predict how it's going to unfold now. The world's Arun Roth has been covering the Bradley Manning trial for us. Thank you. Thanks, Marco. This is PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from Medtronic, now accepting nominations for the Bakken Invitation, a global celebration of patients helped by medical technology who make a difference in their communities. More on how nonprofits can earn a grant at liveongiveon.org. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World. Looking to get a lively conversation going? Well, next time you're at a dinner party, just say the letters GMO. The subject of genetically modified organisms tends to get passions inflamed, and the debate is only heating up with the need to protect crops from the growing threat of climate change. For our What's for Lunch series on food and climate change, we sent reporter John Miller to Uganda to look at the conversation surrounding one possible GM crop. Cassava is not what you'd call a glamour crop. Above the ground, it's a tall, spindly shrub. The edible parts, the roots, look like gnarly logs. Boil them up and they're gluey and bland. In Uganda, banana is by far the more popular carb, but cassava might be more important. So this is the cassava. It is, it is here. That's Edward Chibuka. He rents half an acre of land in a village north of Uganda's capital, Kampala. For income, he tends a tiny patch of chili peppers and raises a few chickens. But cassava is his lifeline. The land is too small. The income is very, very small. So I have to survive on this cassava. 
In Uganda, as in many parts of Africa, cassava is the ultimate food security crop. It can grow almost anywhere. It produces prodigiously. You don't need to buy seeds. You just use cuttings from last season's crop. Other staples need to be picked and eaten before they rot, but cassava can stay in the ground for years. It tolerates high temperatures and flooding and drought, perfect for the climate that's coming. But here in East Africa, it's under attack. Chibuka pulls up a root and slices it with his machete. The white flesh is riddled with brown marks. You cannot consume this cassava. The culprit is cassava brown streak disease. It first appeared in Uganda in 2005. Now it's sweeping through the country. You may plant and then, and then, and then, and then go without getting anything. I ask him how it feels to plant a crop, wait a year, then pull up nothing but rotten roots. You feel frustrated, discouraged, and hungry. A few miles down the road, scientist Titus Alichai thinks he has a solution. These are cassava plants that have been transformed for resistance to cassava brown streak disease. Alichai is a cassava breeder for Uganda's National Crop Research Institute. He takes me into a shaded nursery full of thousands of small plants. We have copied information from the two viruses that cause cassava brown streak disease and introduce that into the cassava tissue to trigger their immune defense system. That's genetic information. Alichai says moving genes around this way isn't just faster than conventional breeding, it's also much more accurate. Conventional breeding's like having sex. You can't really control how your kids come out. Basically, you're, you're bringing the whole set of genes from one parent you know, to go and mix it with the other set of genes from the other parent. But in the transgenic cassava, the virus fragments are introduced into popular local strains. In theory, the only difference is that they won't be ruined by brown streak disease. The plan is to test them for health and environmental effects, then to give cuttings to Ugandan farmers for free, maybe as early as 2016. That is, if the country decides it can live with genetically modified crops. In Uganda, we don't need GMOs. Richard Mugisha works with a nonprofit that promotes small-scale sustainable agriculture. He's also part of a coalition called the Food Rights Alliance. We are worried, very worried, because we know that once GMOs are introduced in a country, there will not be any other seed. Our traditional seeds will be wiped out completely, and that means they will make our farmers depend entirely on multinational companies. Mugisha says he doesn't believe GM crops are really meant to benefit poor Ugandans. They're meant to benefit the U.S. agricultural giant, Monsanto. In fact, Mugisha says he wouldn't be surprised if Monsanto introduced the cassava brown streak virus in Uganda in order to create a market for GMOs. No one else I talked to made that claim, but for many here, as in the international movement against GMOs, genetic engineering and Monsanto are pretty much the same thing. Monsanto is the gorilla in the closet. They are this technology and this industry's spokesperson. Gregory Jaffe is with the Center for Science in the Public Interest, a consumer group in Washington. He says Monsanto has aggressively pushed GM crops around the world, and its fingerprints are on the efforts by many others to create GM products for low-income farmers, including the disease-resistant cassava, which was developed at a research center with close ties to Monsanto. But Jaffe says it's important to separate the technology from the company. 
there are concerns, real concerns, about agricultural biotechnology or genetically modified organisms. Unfortunately, the international debate around genetic engineered crops has become an us versus them type of thing. You have proponents on one side who talk in generalities, who say this is safe, it's beneficial, and you have opponents on the other side who say it's not safe and not beneficial, and the reality is you need to look at each specific application. And those can vary a lot. One GM crop may repel insects, another may tolerate drought, another may have more vitamins. They may behave differently in the environment or in the body. Then there's the question of how they're distributed and who gets the profits. Uganda's parliament is considering a biosafety law that would weigh the risks and benefits of GMOs on a case-by-case basis. Supporters say it'll help the country take advantage of a powerful technology. Opponents worry that the law will be too hard to enforce. Both sides admit that the argument hasn't really reached the people who would be growing the crops. One afternoon, I drop in on a farmer named Eva Mugalu. Very nice to meet you. Mugalu raised 11 kids on three acres of land. We walk past piglets chomping on cassava leaves and into her cassava patch. She pulls up a root. It's infected. You see? That is a sickness. She pulls up another, which is fine. This one is good. She's not bad. She cracks it in half, shaves off some skin, takes a bite, then mm-hmm. offers some to me. That's good. Starchy, it's good though. Kind of like eating a raw potato. But we're talking survival here, not oat cuisine. I ask Mugalu if she's aware of the controversy over genetic engineering, and she says no. She says she doesn't really care where her crops come from, as long as they're safe and they're there when she needs them. For The World, I'm John Miller, Namulonge, Uganda. Our What's for Lunch series is part of Food for Nine Billion, a two-year project of Homelands Productions and the Center for Investigative Reporting in partnership with The World, PBS NewsHour, and American Public Media's Marketplace. So should we consider GMOs as a technology to help cope with climate change? We'll be asking that question tomorrow in a special Facebook chat. Reporter John Miller will be on hand to moderate the discussion and answer questions about today's story on genetically modified cassava. That's from noon to 1 Eastern time tomorrow on PRI's The World Facebook page. Right now, though, it's GeoQuiz time, and here's a little Baroque music to help you search for the answer. It's a duo in F major for violin and viola. What's interesting is that it's being played on Mozart's violin, his actual personal violin, really. The historic instrument is normally kept at the Mozartium in the European city where Mozart was born. The city's in Austria, near the northern edge of the Alps, about 200 miles west of Vienna. You name the place. We're back with more on Mozart's personal violin later in the program. This is PRI. I'm Marco Werman. Coming up on The World, who gets custody when a parent is deported? I asked the question of the social worker on the witness stand a a few times. If the Department of Social Services had a policy with dealing with parents who were not U.S. citizens who were actually located outside of the country. And each time I asked the question, the answer was no, we do not have a policy. PRI's The World is supported by Medtronic 
now accepting nominations for the Bakken Invitation, a global celebration of patients helped by medical technology who are making a difference in their communities. Learn how nonprofit organizations may earn a $20,000 grant at liveongiveon.org. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH in Boston. If you want to know more about Latin America and about the region's tight links to the United States, you're in the right place. Today, here at The World, we're launching a new partnership. We're pairing with an exciting project called Radio Ambulante. It's focused on people's stories from the Spanish-speaking part of our world, from Latin America primarily, but also from Latino communities all across the U.S. In a moment, we're going to hear one of those stories about a man whose deportation to Mexico separated him from his wife and kids in the U.S., and landed his children in foster care. But first, we turn to Daniel Alarcón, co-founder of Radio Ambulante, to hear what this project is all about. Radio Ambulante is a Spanish-language storytelling project. It's a narrative project. We go after stories that are not necessarily headline news, that are not necessarily front-page stories. Um, we have begin from the premise that uh, the United States is a Latin American country and that geographical and political borders might be real, but cultural borders aren't. So we want to connect Latin America and the U.S. and do that through radio storytelling. And for our non-Spanish-speaking listeners, what does ambulante mean? An ambulante is a, is a, is a street vendor. Uh, an ambulante is someone who's on the move. Our logo is, is a man pushing a cart the, in the shape of a radio. Um, we chose the symbol of an ambulante because uh, Latinos and Latin Americans are on the move. We're, you know, a dynamic group. We Migration is part of our story. Um, and also because, you know, the ambulante is the go-getter. The ambulante is the person who doesn't wait for work to come to him. He goes and finds work. Right. Um, and he's he's out on the streets. And, and it's something you see in every Latin American city and in every American city where Latinos have, have, uh, have, have come. Now, Daniel, you're a journalist. You're also a fiction writer. What, what's the draw to telling stories on radio? You know, I think radio is is what is closest uh, to literature. You know, I, I mean, I, I've written a couple novels and and a lot of short stories, and that's I guess primarily what I do. And I think there's really nothing quite like the intimacy of radio, uh, except perhaps literature. You feel like in a great novel, you're 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 listening in on something that you shouldn't hear, and I think great radio can do that. You know, you have these intimate moments. Um, you have the, the opportunity to hear voices and, and hear the you know hear stories directly from the protagonist, and it is like inhabiting a character or entering another world. So for me, it's been a kind of natural transition. Although I get asked that question all the time. Right. So we're about to hear the first drop in this uh, collaboration between Radio Ambulante and, and PRI's The World. But what, just tell us what kinds of stories you're you're looking out for. How are you choosing these stories? Well, you know, it's an interesting moment in the United States. I think that there's a that politically there's a lot of interesting things going on that that, that have to do with Latinos and and uh, with immigration specifically. Um, we're interested in stories about these emerging identities uh, within this, uh, this this changing context. I think we're interested in stories of second and third generation Latinos. We're interested in stories that push um, and challenge received notions of identity. We're looking for surprising stories, funny stories, moving stories um, from all over the United States and Latin America. You know, we really don't buy this idea that the United States is, is needs to build a wall. I mean, walls don't work. Um, we actually, you know, kind of believe the opposite, you know, that, that it's already happened, that the United States is integrated into Latin America, and we're looking for the stories that showcase that. 
And Daniel, I think the story we're about to hear about Felipe Montes and his kids, I mean, it, it shows just how nuanced all these immigrant experiences really are. It's, they're, they're shaded and not black and white. Yeah, absolutely. It, it, it's complex. It's frustrating. It's, it's a troubling story. It's a uniquely American story, I think, about families and borders and politics and geography. Um, journalist Seth Fried Wessler worked on this piece with Radio Ambulante producer Nancy Lopez, and uh, here it is. Felipe Montez's story begins in October of 2010 in Sparta, a mountain town in North Carolina. After breakfast with his wife, Marie, and their young kids, he walked to the courthouse for a routine parole meeting. He'd racked up too many traffic violations. But this time, immigration officers were waiting for Montes. After almost a decade of living in the United States without papers, he was deported to Mexico, away from his family. In Mexico, Montes worked nonstop, anything to not miss his family. I get up in the morning, six in the morning every day, no matter si Saturday or Sunday. Six in the morning, get ready by seven, start walking. Then it got worse. Montez's wife, Marie, had debilitating health issues. She struggled without Montez, the kid's main caretaker and family breadwinner. And soon after he was sent to Mexico, officials from social services put the couple's three young U.S.-born sons, Isaiah, Adrian, and Angel, into foster care. But Montez said he could care for his kids. From Mexico, his wife agreed too. For the next two years, Montez would fight to reclaim his children. He isn't alone. The U.S. deported at least 180,000 parents of U.S. citizen children in the past two years, based on government data requested by the news site Colorlines.com. It left thousands of children in foster care. Donna Shoemate is Montez's attorney. She realized there weren't clear policies for reuniting families split by deportation. I asked the question of the social worker on the witness stand a, a few times. If the Department of Social Services had a policy with dealing with parents who were not U.S. citizens, who were actually located outside of the country, whether it be Mexico, France, Canada, wherever. And each time I asked the question, the answer was, no, we do not have a policy. Social Services argued Felipe and Marie's kids should stay in foster care. Those officials and the foster families involved declined interviews for this story. As for Montes, the outlook appeared grim. He was in Mexico and couldn't defend himself in person. Last August, U.S. officials allowed Montes to return temporarily to North Carolina to fight for his kids. But his return wasn't easy. His five-year-old son, Isaiah, was confused. He asked Montes, are you going to adopt me? I said, I don't come to adopt you. I'm your father. I come for you because I love you. In court, Montez argued he'd always cared for his kids. I'm their father, he said. Montez won. Here's Shoemate, Montez's attorney again. And the judge found that Felipe was not unfit and that he had not acted inconsistently with his constitutional status as a parent. And it's not a test over whether children are better off in the United States or in Mexico. It doesn't make him unfit that he was undocumented here. It doesn't make him unfit that he was deported. In March... Montez and his sons boarded a plane to Mexico. Because of her health, Marie didn't follow. See that? I am the great. See this? Great. See this? Look. I jump off here. I met Montez and his boys in the Mexican state of Michoacan. They lived with Montez's mother and siblings in a tiny house. The kids seemed happy, playing in the streets with neighbors. But they were also in a country they'd never known. Everything for them is new. It's totally different than what it used to be. A lot of difference. Over there in America, the jobs is a lot of grass. In contrast, Montez said, Mexico looks bland, dry fields. But one person was thrilled. 
Montez's mother, Griselda. Es, eh, pero es hermoso porque, pues no, me esperaba ver unos niños tan preciosos. No. Ahorita. She hadn't seen her son for years. He was still handsome, she said. And she'd also never met her three grandchildren. She called them precious. Montez also tried to ease the transition. The first day he left the house to look for work, he left a list of English translations for his mom. After a week, though, the boys were already understanding their grandmother's Spanish. But the children worried about abandonment every time their father walked out the door. He asked me if I would leave him. Again, I said, I never left you. He's got the poor last time. I tried to explain to him for him to understand. Truth is, Montez is struggling in Mexico. Home is in North Carolina with his wife, and he's got a landscaping job there. In Mexico, he found some work loading scrap metal onto trucks, but it barely pays, and it's why Montez headed to the U.S. in the first place. Montez hopes he'll be allowed to move back to the U.S. with his kids. I can come back to America, be with my wife and my kids, start a new life, like a family, like it used to be. But for that to happen, he's betting on the immigration reform bill being debated by senators now. In it, there's a provision that would let deportees with kids and spouses in the U.S. apply to return. For the world, I'm Seth Fried Wessler, Mexico. To see a slideshow of the Montes family and their journeys, go to theworld.org. We've also included a selection of other stories in Spanish and English from our partners at Radio Ambulante. So we asked earlier in today's GeoQuiz where you'd find Mozart's personal violin, because to see it up close and hear it played, well, it's a little like getting inside Mozart's head just for a moment, like you're stepping back in time to an 18th century musical world. Well, to find Mozart's violin and the answer to the GeoQuiz, we've got to leave the studio and take a short walk here at WGBH. So we're moving down the hall from Studio C7, where we usually broadcast a show from, to the Fraser Performance Studio. Mozart's concert violin and viola are now in the United States for the first time, and a handful of musicians are going to have the chance to play them. Ulrich Leisinger, who's head of research at the Salzburg-based Mozartium Foundation, we're going to go meet him in Fraser right now. So apparently Mozart's violin is the one on the left being played by the bearded gentleman and his viola is being played by the woman in the middle. Amazing. We're in the presence of history here. I feel Mozart is in the room. Honestly. That's crazy. This is the first time, Ulrich, this is it's the first time in the States? In the States, with one exception, namely that the viola was actually for a decade here when it came into the possession of, uh, of a gentleman but it was then sold to us in 1966. Could we step in here? It may be a little quieter. We can have a nice conversation. You came here with these instruments from Salzburg. How rare is it that Mozart's violin and viola even leave Salzburg? They travel rarely because it's a lot of work to prepare and to do. We have set them up on two different planes, each accompanied by two people, so this makes four already for just two instruments, so we don't do that very often. On two different planes in the event that if the plane were to crash, at least both instruments don't die? Yeah, this is a something that the insurance put on us. I think, on the other hand, you double the risk of one plane crashing down, so I do not see a big advantage. 
Now, I think I think most people think of Mozart as a composer on the piano and as a pianist. But how often did he pick up uh, this violin and viola to perform? The picture is a little bit wrong because in the end, Mozart started both as a violinist and as a pianist. And one of his first public performances was playing a violin concerto at the age of seven, though not at Carnegie Hall, but at least in the Salzburg residence of the Archbishop. Later, he often played the violin. He was concertmaster at the Salzburg court, and we really have to imagine that he played the violin concertos we all love and adore himself frequently, and he even took them on his travel to Mannheim and Paris. We know Mozart's music is a creation of genius. How was he as a violinist? Was he pretty good? He was probably more than just pretty good. <laughs> he himself told at some point that he really excelled on the instrument, and his father told him, you know, you could be the best violinist on the world. You really do not know how well you're playing. What's the story of these instruments since Mozart's death? Where have they been? Have they had kind of these storied adventures, or do we know pretty much where they've been this whole time? We know a lot, but not all details. The violin practically did not leave Salzburg. We are fairly sure that the instrument remained there when Mozart left for Munich first to perform Idomineo and then was called to Vienna by the archbishop who was on a visit. And this instrument was later found in the possession of Mozart's sister. She herself was not an accomplished violinist, so she sold the instrument when the father of one of her keyboard students asked for an instrument. But from this point on, the instrument was regarded as Wolfgang's instrument, and this has the fortunate situation that the instrument was not changed during the 19th century as most historical instruments are. I mean, I play jazz and blues violin. If I asked you to play it right now, you, what would you say? I think Mozart himself, though he, jazz did not exist at this point, he would have improvised on his instrument as well, though in this respect, his times and ours are not entirely different. Any chance I could try it? Perhaps after the concert, okay. <laughs> we can try to set this up. Ulrich, thank you very much for speaking with us. Thanks. I wish everybody great pleasure with our instruments and Mozart's music. Well, if only this violin could speak. It can. Indeed. That was Ulrich Reisinger from the Mozartium Foundation based in Salzburg, Austria. And Salzburg is the answer to our geo-quiz. You are hearing Mozart's strings right now. No, it's not me. This is Mozart's duo for violin and viola, number one in G major. You can see pictures of these historic instruments and this performance at theworld.org. This is PRI, Public Radio International.
I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Nelson Mandela spent his sixth day in the hospital today. He's being treated for a recurring lung infection. The anti-apartheid hero is 94, so people in South Africa and around the globe have been giving a lot of thought lately to his legacy. Today, President Jacob Zuma urged South Africans to reflect on Mandela's entire life and struggle, not just his years as the country's first black president. John Curtis is doing just that through political cartoons, past and present. Curtis runs Afri Cartoons, which features the work of South Africa's top editorial cartoonists. Afri Cartoons got its start as a showcase for cartoons about Nelson Mandela. And, John, you think it's important to show the life of Nelson Mandela through political cartoons. Tell us why. Well, I think of all the personalities out there, this is obviously one that cartoonists have really embraced especially looking at the cartoons retrospectively. It's interesting to see how cartoonists warmed up to uh, Nelson Mandela, those that were initially skeptical about him. And it's also interesting having a look at the way his story evolves through political cartoons. It's noteworthy, too, that for a subject like Mandela, I mean, cartoonists had been forbidden by the South African government for a long time to draw him. Tell us about that ban. That's quite right. It was a band called the Banned Persons Act. Uh, it was promulgated in 1950, part of the uh, Suppression of Communism Act. What it intended to do was not only ban the person from uh, meeting more than one person at a time, but it also banned anybody from quoting or depicting that person, even referring to them. Obviously, that had a huge impact on cartoonists of the day. Right. So now you've got this project to kind of present uh, the life of Nelson Mandela through political cartoons by South African cartoonists. But I imagine many of those cartoons don't actually feature his face. How did that affect your options in curating all this? It restricted the options tremendously. Nelson Mandela's story in political cartoons only really starts in the 1990s. In the late 80s, there are a couple that allude to him but don't depict his face. It was very difficult for them because nobody knew what Nelson Mandela looked like. And they had to borrow from descriptions from people who had visited him. And there was a poster that was created in the Netherlands, which uh, some cartoonists imagined how Nelson Mandela would look 27 years after anyone had last seen him. So there weren't any pictures anybody could use at the time to kind of at least understand what he looked like? I mean, I understand some of them, some of those political cartoonists in South Africa couldn't draw him, but just imagining him? No, uh, you know, there were one or two photographs that were taken of him while he was on Robben Island, but they weren't broadly distributed, and cartoonists certainly didn't have access to them in South Africa. So as far as that ban, did South African cartoonists comply with it, or did they figure out clever ways to work around it? A couple of the cartoonists in the late 1980s started to work around it. They would allude to Mandela, which was also in conflict with the law, but uh, they started to do that in the late 1980s when it started looking like things were about to change. Right. And, and when did the ban kind of get ignored altogether? Was it before Mandela actually walked out of prison? Yes, by 1989, it became clear that uh, the government wasn't going to charge people for contravening the, the Banned Persons Act, but they'd still not seen him, and they were really challenged to imagine what he would look like the day he walked out of prison. Mm. When Mandela finally walked out of prison, what were the, some of the comments about how he looked from cartoonists? Were people saying, oh, he looked like this, I thought he was going to look like that? 
Well, it's interesting looking back that uh, some of the cartoonists were still sceptical about Nelson Mandela and what he would be bringing to the table. And a couple of them showed that in their initial cartoons where they showed him with his fist raised up in defiance and alluded to his militancy and everything. And only later on did those cartoonists relax in their depictions of him. I'm wondering, too, with time having passed, how the community of cartoonists in South Africa has changed since the end of apartheid. Well, I suppose with everything, the community has changed tremendously. During the apartheid era, there was only one black cartoonist who drew for a mainstream newspaper. And now probably half of the cartoonists in South Africa, there are about 30 in all, are black cartoonists. So it's wonderful how cartoonists have become more representative of the country. John Curtis runs Cartoons, a showcase for the work of contemporary political cartoonists in South Africa. You can see two slideshows of South African political cartoons documenting the life of Nelson Mandela at theworld.org. John, thanks very much. Thank you very much. By the way, it wasn't just Mandela cartoons that were banned under apartheid. That's Weeping, a popular 1987 song by the South African band Bright Blue. If you listen closely, there's chorus in the background singing Kozi Sikalele Africa, and it was banned at the time because it was the anthem of the African National Congress. The authorities didn't notice, at least for a while. After apartheid, Kozi Sikalele Africa became part of the new South African National Anthem. Been standing back. Weeping by Bright Blue. Not a swan song yet for Nelson Mandela, more of an unofficial anthem of sorts. We do have a swan song, though, that we want to tell you about. A great musician from Nigeria died yesterday. When we speak of Nigerian music, the names Fela Kuti and King Sunny Ade come up a lot. But this is guitarist Fatai Rolling Dollar. He performed the style known as High Life. It's from Ghana originally, but Nigerians love it. And without Fatai Rolling Dollar interpreting High Life, there'd likely be no Fela Kuti and many other well-known artists in Nigeria who were influenced by the sound. Nigerian artist Ade Bantu recently produced a documentary in which he profiled Fatai Rolling Dollar. Dollar was a subtle technician. It wasn't about posing or showing off. He just played those riffs effortlessly, you know, and you hear it when he plays it. He's the quintessence of a genuine high-life musician. He was like a metronome, you know, and working with this kind of person, you know, you're just like, wow. The Nigerian newspaper This Day also noted that Dollar died on the same day as another famous Nigerian musician, Pa Benedict Odiase. He was the composer of Nigeria's national anthem. President Goodluck Jonathan paid tribute today to both men. Fatay Rolling Dollar had no birth certificate, but by most people's estimates, he was 86 years old. We leave you with some of his acoustic highlight from one of his most recent recordings. From the Nan and Bill Harris Studios in Boston, I'm Marco Werman, and we're back tomorrow. Oh, 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 oh.
The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, Public Radio International, and WGBH Boston, supported in part by the National Endowment for the Arts, which believes that a great nation deserves great art. By the Luce Foundation's Henry R. Luce Initiative on Religion and International Affairs. By the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world. MacFound.org. And by the WGBH Fund for Environmental Reporting, whose donors include the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting a cooperative approach to solving our critical environmental problems while we still can. PRI Public Radio International.